0: From Public Health Institute, welcome to the CDC Global Health Podcast, the podcast that highlights stories from the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship Program, a U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention-funded program implemented by the Public Health Institute. Our fellows are guided by CDC Global Health experts and work on the front lines of global health, developing the technical and professional skills needed to make meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges. I'm your host, Whitney Sturton-Hall, the program's administration and communications lead. Our guests today are Lucy Ellis and Gareth Durant. Lucy Ellis is program architect for the Unnamed Road, which is part of Designing for Systems Innovation and Leadership, or DSIL, and she works as a partner at The Ready. Gareth Durant is a designer and facilitator for the Unnamed Road and DSIL. They share their background in public health and leadership training, their insights into improving leadership systems, and how they interact with our fellows. Welcome, Gareth and Lucy. It's great to have you here. To get started, uh, could you chat about what DSIL is and what your current roles are? And then a little bit about your work with our fellows and some of the other organizations that you've worked with.
1: We are somewhat of a uh, motley crew um, of people working in different areas of the world. Um, That includes uh, New Zealand. I'm based in in Taiwan. Uh, Lucy's in the US, but originally from New Zealand. So it gets all very complicated. Um, But we work on really interesting projects either, again, in the leadership development space, um, so working with WHO or, um, you know, governments like the UAE um, supporting the leadership development of either uh, directors or uh, regional level players in the WHO or just um, people working in the government in UAE. Um, But we also work on some really interesting design projects where we're either a thought partner or like a strategic uh, support. And those are things like, how can we design age-friendly cities? How can we design um, HIV programming uh, that's youth-centered? So those are more of our strategic partner work. And a lot of it is in public health um, on some exciting and relatively uh, gnarly public health uh, questions.
2: I'm actually former CDC and left about a year ago now and I came into the DSIL community um, by doing uh, what is their kind of executive leadership program that's kind of a flagship offering that's part of the DSIL ecosystem. And I did that while I was at CDC um, with the support of my supervisor. And that was a transformative experience for me that helped solidify kind of where I've headed today, which has taken me out of CDC, but not out of public health and not out of the leadership space. And so kind of the role I ended up playing with this was was to be the dot connector when, when I was given the opportunity to say like, hey, we want to build a very provocative, bold and disruptive leadership development experience for the PHI fellows. This is, you know, uh, like an all new thing and a really exciting opportunity that the Center for Global Health um, wanted to stand up. I was like, I think there's only one place to go uh, to find the kind of community that would be capable of designing and and co-creating that with the fellows in a context like CDC, where um, there's such Specific dynamics around power and equity that we'll get into later in terms of what does it then mean to really be a leader in this space or to to cultivate leadership in this space. So I kind of have played like an architecting role in the background, um, and I spend most of my day job uh, daytime working with another company called The Ready that works in organizational design and transformation, but very much. Um, these sort of fields are intertwined, and um, I think that you know that's we we work in sort of blurry boundaries, um, and that's that's quite important to be willing to cross those boundaries to kind of get the work done and the leadership development
1: growth. Lucy is very much also a CDC whisperer, so having someone that has been inside the institution and then has brought in some some new dynamics uh, to this leadership uh design and uh our kind of portfolio of support. It's just been really great to have Lucy on board to kind of help us navigate also what this system is like. And I think that's a really exciting, yeah, middle ground, that ambiguity. We're trying to do some cutting edge stuff, but also you need to know where people come from and how the organization has run uh, for many years. So it's yeah, she's also a a somewhat of an oracle and a whisperer as well on the on the project. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm I not sure. I, I'm not sure. I always whisper super well, and sometimes I piss people off. But that's okay.
0: <laughs> that's part of the joke. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great uh, resume tagline. CDC whisperer. <laughs> um, well, before we get into more specifics about you know how you all work with our current PHI fellows, from a personal standpoint, I'd love to hear what drew you each to working in public health and how your career has progressed
2: yeah so i think it's really important to be really transparent about like um you know i i I was in the global humanitarian sector um like i don't know six eight years ago something like that and i remember i was writing reports in the unicef pakistan office for communications and um, I had a mentor, the deputy in that office, and she was like, if you want to do things other than communications, you got to pick like a technical field and go get a master's degree. And I was like, gotcha. So I was like, hmm, public health or education. And I just was like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." And I picked public health. And then I ended up um, again, like not through any strategy or um, just life circumstance. I was trailing a spouse at the time. I ended up in Atlanta and I was like, oh, there's this place called CDC. Hmm, curious. Mecca of global health. That's kind of handy. Um, and then I like fortuitously ended up inside the Center for Global Health in the Division of Global Health Protection as an ORISE fellow working on uh, what was called the IMPACT program at the time, that was a leadership and management program for um, public health officials in other countries. So we were building leadership capacity. And for those who know the DGHP world, um, we were up there alongside the field epidemiology training program which is kind of CDC's flagship uh, program worldwide uh, that they're quite well known for. And that was my first foray into leadership development, which also then led me into the organizational design and transformation space. But like, I, I think what I, I, what I would say is like my career kind of progressed, but then I reached a point where I was like, I don't think it's about progression anymore. It's about like, I just, got like circled closer and closer around this thing that I realized I love and I, and, and I get on fire about and I could spend decades chipping away at and never fully sold, um, which is sort of, how do you, how do you, um, how do you eliminate like the, the the shit that holds us back in these inside organizations, right. That takes up all our time and energy and depletes us of doing really courageous, creative, impactful stuff. Um, but that like I didn't have some big strategy. (laughs) Like, I just, I, I just went where the energy was and where things got me excited. And I didn't pay too much attention to, um, trying to be the first author on something or trying to like get some sort of accomplishment. I just kind of followed what got me really excited. Um, and had a few serendipitous things along the way.
1: It's interesting to reflect on because, uh, I think the earliest memory I have of a career direction was wanting to be a diplomat. You know, I was I was studying overseas. I was doing my undergraduate in Taiwan in Chinese, and I kind of thought like the next thing would be the foreign service. Um, then I realized I have no diplomacy, and it's really not a skill set that um, I I have. And I, everyone around me that was already in the foreign service was spending their time like negotiating which zoo China got to send a panda to, or you know, like. <laughs> um stuff that just wasn't really interesting to me and then uh because i spoke chinese i wanted to be an interpreter and i was like all right i'll switch tacks and i'll um i'll uh do translation and interpreting that's really exciting um and then i realized as an interpreter you don't have your own voice like you, you don't have an opinion um and then i again realized that i'm quite opinionated um and after i graduated university my first public health job was literally standing outside of a toilet block handing out condoms and working on working in sex on premises venues as kind of a peer educator in the HIV space and you know that is not discussed in your high school career counseling um, as an option and once I realized that um, sexual reproductive health as as a sector um, having honest conversations with people in the field in like really interesting settings was a possibility that's when I decided oh obviously public health is for me and that's when I, I kind of really realized that I have um, a knack for this kind of work as well.
0: Since you both have this global experience in cross-cultural work, you've also worked in health equity, equity equity-based design, and had various field experiences. Are there any moments that stand out to you as key learning points in your career that influenced the work you do today in leadership training? I
2: started out my career um, managing people in the humanitarian sector like i very quickly was thrust into management roles at like the age of 22 and here i am managing you know congolese staff that are twice my age and like with next to no um kind of attention to general leadership um growth and management like competencies let alone any kind of any sort of substantive attention to like You know neo-colonial power dynamics going on there and like i saw how quickly you could um find yourself um changing like it just gets into your blood what you know the dynamics the power dynamics you just kind of absorb them and start acting in those ways um you know and i like i remember being in congo and, and just there is this these like hangovers from the belgian era that that once I went to another country and managed staff in South Sudan, I noticed were not the same. Um, but that, you know, there, there is such a complexity to cross cultural leadership and that the leadership development arena, especially in global health or in global development in general, um, leadership development in general is still so like corporate white male north america like centric and there's a dismantling of the field that is going on right now that i feel like is what's so exciting about this program is that we have intentionally like flipped it all on its head and we're starting with the quote unquote bottom of the organization and it's like no it's not the bottom because real leadership happens in relationship and it's about like not about your formal title so like that's just um i've I've kind of like run out of like discarded i guess a lot of some of the more classic uh leadership content because i'm like well does this shit work when you get to low resource environments where people have been marginalized and systematically oppressed over decades like no well then it's not then it's not no, no, it's not good. Like, this will not do. Um, And so I feel like I'm constantly learning and um, always coming with a posture of curiosity in this space. Um, And that is why, like, when I was given the invitation to sort of architect this program, I was like, I am not the one who knows how to do this. What I do know is how to find the people that I think could be trusted with such a delicate task.
1: Yeah, I think riffing off that, I think there's like a huge hypocrisy in leadership development in, in public health. And the sense is that, you know, headquarters teaches regional how to how to manage and, and lead and, you know, regional teachers, country programs, how to do things. And eventually we get to the, the field work um, and on the ground. And, you know, we teach them that a Gantt chart or a log frame is how they're going to crack the system. And none of that is true. Um, And I found in my work, I was so focused on um, the specifics of the kind of health output. So how many IUDs were inserted, how many people got, um, you know, whatever it was, like some unit of um, healthcare provision. Um, And I wasn't really thinking about the systems, nor was I thinking about all the unofficial, informal, innovative ways that people are showing leadership. I remember being in the Solomon Islands, and we were dealing with a flood uh, you know bridges were broken down and within 24 hours there was an entire economy of a raft system across the rivers where you would pay a very small fee but to get yourself your kids whatever needed to go across um, the river you know like a pulley raft system and these were like you know these were doors of fridges that had fallen off these were you know bits of bamboo put together but there was a thriving economy that allowed for a response, a solution to the problem, and then all of that was shut down because the you know infrastructure project was greenlit, and then you know they built the bridges again. We didn't even look at hey, is there some a, a solution that's already been bubbling up? Is there leadership that people are seeing in their communities that we just have to continue to support? And it was all these examples of that that really made me say. Um, You know leadership and kind of innovative solutions to things are happening all around us and it's and it's not until we let go of some of our preconceived and very you know kind of going back to what lucy said these 1980s people management you know business centric you know anglo-centric uh ways of of leading um we're really going to see a lot more progress when we democratize that and just see it for what it is that everyone is a leader in their own right in really different ways
0: when designing this public health leadership program for fellows that you all have touched on a bit what kind of competencies or methodologies did you decide to focus on
2: i'm, I'm really looking forward to gareth kind of sharing on this but we um we kind of had five design principles that honestly um like honestly just kind of emerged I don't remember. I like literally just came these five words came out and then I put them down on paper and then like the rest of the team then built them out into something that like there was something magical about how they came out that I'm like, I don't, I, I don't feel like that came from me. I feel like it came from somewhere else in the universe that wasn't me. And, um, and so we had the five things to equity, relationality, um, emergence co-creation and transformation and those sound like super fuzzy words especially to people that would so much rather just give me like a quantitative i can measure that i have ticked the box and i can do the x thing you're like no nah, man i'm sorry like it's just not how leadership is leadership is super messy and so you know equity was front and center in that um and uh and I'll, I'll let Garrett speak to that a bit more as well. Relationality to me, I, I just saw time and again that, that, like, we don't know how to prioritize the relationships and think in relational maps in terms of what we're trying to achieve together. Um, we get task oriented, not people oriented. Um, so, you know, and some, and some of the best, like the best leaders I worked with at CDC, um, both, were, um, I worked with two of the principal deputy directors in the Center for Global Health, um, Kevin Kane and Hamid Jaffrey, and both of them, I would watch like up close and personal how it was that they managed relationships, and that was core to what it meant to to lead um, lead well. And I just think that that it's often forgotten. Um, emergence is something that. Um I think people, like can be quite challenging to wrap your head around. and once you start to wrap your head around, it can also be quite like scary because we would much rather have a plan that we say to ourselves, we're gonna do A, B, and C on this timeline. But if COVID taught us anything, it taught us that like plans are just our like security blanket to help us feel in control. But like things are gonna change. On a dime, and if we don't know how to pivot, and we're too damn attached to like the plan that we made, um, we're we're we just we're gonna fail the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, so there's that iterativeness, um, and then co-creation kind of in there with the equity piece is like, if we don't have all the right voices, if we don't have the voices at the table, um, like who the hell do we think we are to build solutions for someone else? Um, and again. There's a lot of dismantling of power structures there that um that co-creation allows and then that last transformation piece is that when it comes to like leadership growth as a, as a person and as an organization like unless we're talking about fundamentally maturing as a human being then i don't really think we're talking about leadership development like if we're not talking about working through our biggest blind spots and our biggest vulnerabilities and and then we're, we're just we're just like painting on the surface of things. So that's um, and and that when we do real leadership in public health, to me, is the people that are like, God damn it, I am going to spend twenty years of my career fighting for polio eradication, and I am going to like, there's not like I will not cease on this thing, you know. And then and then you have enough people that are driven like that. They transform like a whole disease or, you know, whatever aspect of public health it is that you want to solve. And you kind of need to have that pioneering spirit in my mind to, um, to really like to demonstrate leadership in this space. So yeah, that's sort of my like, you know, quick take on it, but I would love Garrett to hear your thoughts as well.
1: Yeah. I think those design principles um, was a, Sifting of insights around what aren't we doing well, and what what are the critical conversations that need to happen? Um, what if we were given free kind of range? What would we um, what would we really want to do? Like, if this is a legacy project, if this is um, we can build it from scratch, where would we go if we were bolder? So that's kind of. How um, we landed on those things. But if you look at them in juxtaposition to what's out there, I think it's really interesting. So if you look at, you know, um, what are the competencies for a graduate from a Masters of Public Health or a DRPH, um, essentially, there's different models. So for accredited MPH programs or kind of WHO workforce type uh, competencies. But if you look at any of them, they have you know quote unquote technical expertise which is all your biostats and epidemiology and things like that and then you have these kind of cross-cutting issues um, that are bundled together and a lot of that is diversity inclusion or leadership a very broad category for the competencies and then um, systems thinking and ultimately as we deep dive into those we wanted to pull out the ones that were you know a little bit more radical And a little bit more uh, where we need to go for the future of public health. I don't think anyone's um, post-pandemic lamenting um, that we didn't have, you know, enough uh, policy revision, you know, experience or, um, you know, where, where we're lamenting on things like how equitable is our society in general, how quickly can we build trust? You know, what does the community say about that? Are they in right relationship with us as quote unquote experts? Um, did we allow for time to see the system emerge and respond without necessarily presupposing something or just saying, well, this is what it says on the, on the ticket items. This is what I have to do. When we design a vaccine program to, you know, do outreach or whatever, did we co-design it with the group that were, um, you know, most affected or had a low level of trust historically with the government? No, we didn't. And did we really use this time to transform the way our systems are? you know running for the better for the future for any future pandemic or any other issue not really we didn't and so for us it was like if this is our moment and we have you know uh, such support by the infrastructure that um, brought us in to really go there Um this is what we thought was most important and it has been a rocky road because it's quite controversial but it's also been so liberating as well and that's what's been really exciting about the program so far
0: yeah, I love that idea that we're often focusing too much on tasks and need to focus more on people and also just needing to disrupt the systems that are in place. Um, what kind of support do fellows receive in the unnamed road?
2: Given that um, Gareth is deeper in the execution on the work, he'll be able to give a, an even richer answer. But I think that um, I think the really key aspect of the support that they receive is that we, in that both in the, that the, the design principles continue to play out in that support. So the support is co created. Like there is a number of ways in which the fellows have weighed in on what it is that they, they get in terms of support. Um, there is like active conversations about the way that the support provided. Uh, the equity implications of like certain time zones are having more challenges accessing the support, the relationality, like we are deeply committed to you as a human being and your growth as a person. And it's like, you know, like, I think people are kind of unsure what to make of that. There's like an intimacy and vulnerability that comes with that. So um, that's really key. And then the emergence piece for example, is that we had, like, here's the program, here's what we're rolling out, and then we started, and then we, like, also added new pieces in that Gareth can talk about that, you know, are meeting the needs. So there is this truly, we are demonstrating by the way the program is evolving in real time, the principles that we want to invite the fellows to learn to live into in their own work, um, and then that that transformation piece around, like, We're not just here to like run a bunch of trust exercises. Like we are here to help you move through like what we hope are massive breakthroughs in your life. And I say that from personal experience, like I like the DSIL community and the coaching and the leadership experience that I've had with um, Katie Grenier and the others on the team is just has literally transformed my life and I would not be here today and half of who I am if it were not for the deep work that I have done with them. I would not have chosen to take a huge leap and leave CDC to do full-time organizational design and transformation work and then to be coming back and still serving in this environment, which was always what I hoped to do when I made that move. So, So that's kind of like from the higher level the, the ethos of the kind of support. But Gareth can speak more specifically, I think, to the, the actual nuts and bolts of that too.
1: Yeah, I think I think the ambiguity of the program has been a delightful challenge. Um, it's kind of like being offered candy from strangers. You're like, what are you doing? What do you mean? What do you mean you're here to support me for a year? What do you mean I choose my own adventure? What do you mean I name my own road? Um and I think that, you know, speaks to, I guess, the broader system and what it feels like to be in, uh, more bureaucratic organizations that might be more hierarchical where you don't feel like you are a, um, a critical, um, three dimensional person who is on a journey to kind of self actualize and, and, and have the most fulfilling career you have. But those are literally our starting points. So it's, it's about saying, If you're only interested in advanced biostatistics, can we get you into a place where you're part of a community of practice so that you see some of those relational aspects of the work that you're doing, even if you're kind of focused only on those things and you only see that, you know, advanced statistics and field epidemiology as, um, as leadership. If you're really overwhelmed and kind of burnt out with your work and you can't You don't have the bandwidth to get involved in a cohort based model where you know you go on a journey with peers and you learn from peers and we support you in that journey we offer executive coaching advising on specific topics so you could you could be like how do i navigate Uh, the cdc as an african-american woman what's it like to be black a woman and in public health you know what does it look like to be queer in public health we start to say like how can we tailor and customize this program so that whatever support you're having difficulty navigating that's the support that we make sure happens or it could just be a support pod and saying like well this group um are all based in west africa and we have some Cultural aspects of our work that we really want to talk and discuss let's meet every month um, to kind of unpack some of those things um, So it's very much a build-your-own-adventure tailored support and I think that was a really new concept where um, people were very um, Yeah, it was like a little hesitancy in the beginning and then we've seen this complete change where it's like so you're really here to just support me all year depending on what needs to happen and I can bring my like, can I bring my work related challenges to this leadership program and work it out with my peers and then learn from that and then apply it? And I was like, literally the definition of health of, of leadership development in my book. So, yes, absolutely. And I think it took a couple of pictures before we got the cohort on board to say like, oh, wow, like this is this is how it works. And it's not unit three, you know, um, lesson two, um, a video on people management and public health certainly doesn't need that. And leadership development um, has moved far beyond that kind of work.
0: That makes sense. People would be nervous. It's unnerving to be vulnerable and address issues in the workplace that can often have deeper roots. Uh, So you both touched on systems and that they can be flawed. Um, So what aspects of coaching or mentorship do you feel are broken right now or in need of repair in the public health space?
2: I mean, I would... I would almost say like, I don't know if it's broken or in need of repair, but like just that coaching, how prevalent is that as a sort of support structure for the average public health professional, you know? Um, and for those who then do have that, what, how do we know, do we know how to come to that support bringing our whole selves? Um, I think what I've, what, especially in the CDC context, um, and I think the thing that like, I know I really want to try to disrupt is that segregation of personal and professional, um, when it comes to your leadership journey and development, because I'm like, it's not even like, I think it's preferable to have an integrated approach when you do coaching and mentoring. Uh, of the personal and professional, I'm like it's literally not possible to, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, develop as a professional, as a leader, and in a in an organization, in a way that's really going to achieve like lasting, integrated impact, without attending to the personal. Now there are people, and you can name them. Um, and I won't name names but you can name people who have driven enormous impact in global health and the numbers are like absolutely astonishing and yada 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 but when you find out that that same person is also like ruthless and a bully and toxic and da 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 like I'm like well what have we done like cool we've like you know we've increased like we've we've hit these particular um, indicators in some particular disease but in the meantime we've like mowed down you know the health system because we didn't give a crap about like these other four diseases and we just treated like the you know the various like actors in the in the game like the community health workers is like little lemmings and yeah, you know, like if you don't take a fully human approach to your own leadership journey it's inevitable that somewhere along the line you're going to kind of dehumanize the, the the work that you're trying to achieve together. Um, so that's what I feel like is a bit broken, not just, I guess, in coaching and mentoring, but in the way that we think about leadership development. What about you, Gary?
1: Yeah, I think, um, so coaching and mentoring are relationships. So the relationships between a coachee and a, and a coach and obviously a mentor and mentee. So the fact that they are relational rather than kind of assessment based or training outcome based They fit beautifully in that middle ground of what support people need for a comprehensive um, development um, of them as leaders. So yes, you can lean into recruitment policies and kind of how to get the right people. You can lean into 360 surveys that give you a sense of how are other people experiencing you. Like that's absolutely great. Obviously, you need technical expertise. You need the ability to engage um, with groups of people some of that can be moved into a far more transformative space through kind of experiential learning and things like that but you need to hold that learning in relationship to continue to grow hold each other accountable and things like that so it has a beautiful beautiful place to um i guess allow for the processing of individual learning to not leave performance appraisals and and critical conversations to the end of the year um, it allows for managers to show up uh, for a wide spectrum of issues that are happening in their workplace, and then have a feedback uh, model as well. So I think you know if you're not doing any of those things, you're you're not you're doing a disservice to um, your kind of uh, pipeline of leadership and things like that. But at the same time, I don't think you can coach or mentor your way out of um, structural oppression, right? So like it, there is something to be said for you know succession planning. So, you know, if I offered someone who was a junior career professional, you know, coaching um, in your first year, um, or I offered them to co-create a three-year plan to get them to junior management, um, and what are the things that needed to happen in order to have a succession pipeline, and in fact, even had a conversation with senior management and say, where will you go for in the next three years? Can you go somewhere else and leave uh, more opportunity, um, or like, can you take someone under your wing as part of a three-year plan? So that they can take over your role um, when you left. So I think it has a crucial role to play in leadership development. But if you're really looking for um changing the landscape of who is in positions, I think we need to go a little bit further to talk about, you know, dismantling some things, succession planning, ongoing support, different ways of completely changing the way we recruit and retain and promote.
0: And what about soft skills? What do you think are some key soft skills that help set our fellows up for success, or uh, young professionals like our fellows?
2: That's a great question. I think um, I think there's been a lot of debate around the use of the term soft skills to begin with, and um, I, I just like to put it out there. A couple of other like terms we like to use are like transversal skills or whole self skills. Which really, to me, signal like the skills that you need, no matter what you choose to do, no matter where you choose to go, if you want to grow in leadership. Um, you know, the transversal being the kind of these skills that cross over any boundary, really. Um, and and I think that they are, um, there. It's this combination of like there's courage in there because if if you're going to really make an impact in public health, you are going to have to like be willing to go against the status quo and question like the way things are and, and say difficult things in difficult rooms. And again, that's what I watched and observed when I worked with some, you know, I feel like I had the real honor to work with some really, um, sound leaders in in the CDC environment. And I watched them make hard plays and, and speak up upwards to those in greater power than them. So, um, the courage piece is always there. I think there is, um, also a humility piece and like this low ego thing of like, if people, people like are attracted to someone who is not there for their own gro- their own progression. Like people find it infectious and contagious. I think when, when you meet someone who's like so committed to whatever public you know, health cause or impact you're trying to have. And, and that's, that's how you gather people around you that want to, to do this work together and, and how you build that trust. And then I think there's just this thing around like imagination and play and creativity and levity and humor. That's also really crucial. Like some of the, you know, again, some of the people that I've worked with most that, that I so admire, um, you know, one that comes to mind is Bob Marston who played a really key role in the COVID response at CDC. And I had the honor to work closely with her at times. You know, um, and those, you know, Anne Schuchat, who used to be the deputy of CDC, you know, when she was asked what did she want to be when she grows up as a, you know, as an adult, she said, I want to write musicals. And that's what she does now. She's retired. And I always felt like those, the best scientists that I knew at CDC were also the ones that played music, wrote poetry, you know, like, so, like, did something with the other side of their brain there is something really critical about having both sides of your brain like juiced up, and um, I think that's that's what I would say is really critical: is to look at your life and say, "Am I really exercising both sides of the brain?" Because I cannot have one. You know, it's like breathing in and out. We don't argue that you should only breathe in because if you only breathe in, you're you're going to die. So. What does it mean to use both sides of that brain and other ways of knowing, like somatic, intuitive, emotional ways of knowing are deeply undervalued, I think, in our context um, compared to cognitive ways of knowing. So diving into that, I think, is really key. What about you, Gareth?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about lots of different stories that come to mind, but one of them was hiring a country... uh, country manager for myanmar we had just expand expanded our regional programming um in the human rights space and we moved into myanmar um, and we needed to hire someone on the ground to do our capacity building programs and kind of engage with stakeholders and i was already running some workshops with um, sex workers and some other groups of people um, in country and i basically just did a a round of meet and greets with um, some of the candidates and everyone was overqualified everyone was you know Medical doctors turned public health and have done, you know, x amount of work with, you know, different NGOs and USAID and stuff like that. But there was one person, um, Kain Su-Wen, if she's ever out there, hi Kain. Um, uh, she rocked up and uh, while we were in the middle of a kind of um, uh, workshop, kind of found her way at the back with a group of people and um, was just kind of introducing herself and, and chatting. And at the break, I walked up to her and I'd be like, oh, I'm really glad you made it, etc." But she was halfway through swapping, I guess, makeup tips with a trans sex worker and just having a real laugh and having a great time. And um, it was very clear that I could trust her to engage with communities with dignity and respect, that there wasn't any kind of judgment or, um, you know, preconceived notions about these, these people. And um, that was very much the clincher for me, like, and, and very much the reason why I think these quote-unquote soft skills are just so crucial to getting the work done. And, you know, you can be the best epidemiologist, but if you cannot engage the community and say, hey, this is what we're seeing in the data, but we don't actually know what the motivation is behind it. So, like, I can only go so far and I need to engage people and take the leap. If you can't do that last kind of sense-making Um, and connection with community or feed in some of that information to the community so they can use it outside the report that you have, Um, you're a bad epidemiologist. And I think this is the kind of pushback uh, that I'm starting to to really push. It's like, don't put us into soft and hard skills. Um, I would rather talk about how, you know, you're not doing your fully fledged public health job if all you're doing is looking from a very siloed perspective um, and you're not committed connecting uh, with what else is needing to be done, or you're not creating teams that are working together in ways that all their skills are utilized. So no one person necessarily has every um, competency and every skill set, but you're working in collaboration. And until I see all of that, I'm not really interested in a hierarchy of skills because I always see it break down. Um, when you're not engaging community, you're not utilizing those relational aspects, you don't see the inequity in telling a group of people what to do um, without asking them what their lived experience is and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something that comes up a lot and I spend all my time trying to pitch and um, I spend the exact amount of time trying to sell people on quote-unquote soft skills and almost the exact amount of time being called into organizations with conflict issues because no one has the emotional intelligence to have open communications with their team. So it's kind of like this weird self-fulfilling prophecy where they're like, these aren't important. We just want data analysis. All right, no worries. We all hate each other. Can you come in and help mediate? i was like, "Mm, I see a connection here. Let's talk about that.
0: Right, yeah, definitely a connection there. Well, in looking ahead, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges and also opportunities in public health leadership today?
2: Yeah, I I would say that um, one of the biggest challenges and opportunities is getting strategic about investing in this space. So before I, one of the things that I did when I worked on the impact program with the Division of Global Health Protection, we actually stood up a what was called the global health leadership and management network so we kind of gathered up like everyone we could find um from different universities and organizations in the global health space and we we built out this like network of dozens and dozens of people running all sorts of leadership programs in all sorts of contexts with all sorts of types of public health audiences and there was loads going on right Loads of different competency models, loads of different like ways of stringing the cat, and you know, I don't think there's one single answer um there's also been a similar conversation going on inside of c d c um in terms of bringing together all those that work on leadership development in some capacity at c d c and the different kinds of programs that you find around the place um and what we struggle with is like getting the investment to, um, to allow like, you know, more cohesive, like research about what, um, you know, what will move the needle on leadership development across the organization or across an ecosystem like global health. And instead of like starting, I mean, we've started, you know, we started this pilot program. Absolutely. But what really we also need to see is like, what is the leadership development strategy across the CDC? We don't have one. There is a small group of people working very diligently on that possibility. But I remember when I was in DGHP, I remember being like, "Huh, what are we what are we doing in the whole of CDC? Like we're just doing our thing in our little corner. Where's the bigger picture?" And I just remember, like, climbing further up the ladder of the organization, just expecting to find this at some point and being like, wait, no one's, no one's done this? Like, oh, but and that, if it's being done, like every single person in the organization should know about it because all of us should be stepping into leadership. So it shouldn't be hard to find. It should be provocative and digestible. So I think that to me is one of the biggest challenges right now. Um and along with that kind of goes, well, how do you how do you conceptualize assessing that and measuring that and and um that's where I think we are challenging the status quo with Gareth as an, an amazing evaluation expertise and so do a number of the others on the team, um Sarah and Heather and Nana and really challenging the the mindset around what it means to measure the impact of a program like this and um and not use proxy measures that that lose meaning um because we just want to find a number that makes us feel like there's something quantifiable here so that's a lot but I'll I'll stop there Gareth what do you think
1: I think our biggest challenge in public health is all the baggage that we have from kind of like a hypermedicalized colonial, um, you know, background. So, you know, leadership has to come from uh, medical professional professionals that pivot to public health, um, and that it has to be you know global north and and all of that kind of stuff. So we need to let all of that go and let that that go um, quickly. Um, I think. The other challenge is, um, yeah, we just need to stop. I mean, obviously celebrate the leadership that we do see in public health and we we have amazing leaders and um, amazing kind of new things emerging. But I think like we also need to look at Black Lives Matter and we need to look at, um, you know, Hong Kong's response uh, to democracy movements and things like that. We need to look at the ways that leadership um, happens in other spaces. Um, and really draw from that. I mean, public health is completely democratized, right? So every single person has had a visceral experience of the pandemic. They've had a a deeply profound experience of good and, pa- and bad public health wherever they are in the world. And so it has now permeated every aspect of their life. So that means that we can invite in more people. Um, and so like this, this kind of... Um, you know, ivory tower mentality that we have just really needs to be let go. And, um, we need to seek you know, look for in- inspiration elsewhere, um, but also get over ourselves a little bit because, um, everyone's, you know, like the PTA at your school is a public health entity, you know, um, how your supermarket decided to, um, add, you know, um, alcohol wipes or whatever it is that is a public health response so like we just need to obviously stay high with our standards of you know um, academic rigor and and science but also just understand that we're all in this um, and leadership comes from a lot of different places
0: that's a good transition to the next question that i wanted to ask you both which is that there's a lot to be overwhelmed about in global work or leadership work these days at times um, especially when looking at disease and suffering, inequity, or crises unfolding, like global conflicts. So what gives you hope for working in this field when challenges can feel so large?
2: It's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think it's important to start by normalizing the fact that disillusionment and a lack of hope and frustration sometimes is a very natural part of working in this space and so in my my view like leadership involves being mature in the face of that like i see a lot of people um like there is a temptation to kind of give up on the big picture and the big game the long game and just like carve out your little corner like get your you know first author on this and that and like check out you know and and um and i think that it's important if we're allowed to own when we have those times and when we're really struggling then that makes room to then keep the hope alive as well it's sort of paradoxical but then i find my hope comes from um from watching like how i have been invited in to make an impact in a certain situation because i've followed my the energy that that draws me in. i have followed uh, passion and conviction and um and like a gnarly problem for example like global health leadership and what needs to change and evolve in that space right like 20 years will go by and like we still will not have ever solved that it's a lifetime's worth of work, and um, and I think that once we let go of ever expecting to reach some kind of end point, um, then we can be hopeful about the magic and the transformation that can happen in like the small moments and the small relationships that we work in day to day. And to me, that's the bit that that really does. Um, that really does matter. Like, you know, like, it, it, it's hard to, to kind of, I think it gets underestimated how important it is to be able to look back and say, you know what? We worked with, you know, these folks came together and we had some really amazing collaboration because we were willing to put aside our differences and we built trust and um, we had these breakthroughs and and like that happened over this this period of time. And then, and then it came to an end because that was what made sense, you know. And um, just to let go of needing an end point allows you to then find hope in what happens in the now. Um, it's a little bit of an ethereal answer, but that's that's what works for me, Gareth. Maybe you've got something a little more tactical. <laughs>
1: I can give a, a specific example, but I do concur, like, uh, you know, you don't want to go to toxic positivity where you pretend everything is fine, but you also don't want to go to the depths of despair. How do you find that middle ground where you can actually see the progress for what it is? Um, I think, you know, one example is I did a project around engaging young people to design uh, their own uh, HIV service delivery pathways and They hired me, an Australian consultant working in global health, who wasn't a young, you know, Filipino, uh, living with HIV to run the program. And so that's a huge red flag for me. So step one was find a youth partner. So I hired a youth organization from the Philippines who worked in partnership to design everything and create it and, and drive the, drive the piece. There was a huge component of capacity building within that. So, you know, I might have designed the first, um, you know co-working uh, co co-design session um and you know future sessions were delivered by uh the young activists uh, that have been brought on board for the project and my goal wasn't to map or to create this service delivery although that's what I signed in the TOR my secret goal was that the next time something like this comes around the group that I had engaged will be the first person that they call next and it's little things like that we did a write up and I was like hey, can we get um, this young person um, as a fifth author on this writer. Like, what's the possibility? How can I support them to really engage with the material so that they they can um, a move their career forward, but also kind of have more experience in this project? So for me, I had this kind of clandestine capacity building situation going on um, as part of the project, and that's kind of where i've I've gotten the most joy and hope because I can Trojan horse um, these kind of things um, because of the position I'm in. And so that makes me really excited because I'm I'm seeing tangible kind of responses. And then to, to go to a macro environment, I think, you know, um 10 years ago we weren't talking about decolonizing um public health, or, or I mean, let's be honest, white people weren't talking about decolonizing public health. A whole <laughs> bunch of brown people had been talking about it for a very long time. Um, but we have we're a little bit more okay with critically looking at our our systems and speaking that out loud and so um, I was able at the very beginning of this youth project to call that out and say hey this just isn't right it's not going to work it's not going to land well I don't have enough context um, I love that you have that faith in me but you know it's just not going to happen and so we move things around so that it could be made possible and I think the willingness for us to critique and then have ways to um, move the dial even if it isn't as transformative as we would like um, I think those are really examples um, that give me a lot of um, hope.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Thank you. And a hopeful note to end on, which is always nice. Uh, if people want to learn more about your work with DSIL, so Designing for Systems Innovation and Leadership, where should they go?
1: I can jump in yeah. here. So you can check out the the theunnamedroad.io. Um, so that's about the program specific to PHI and CDC. Or you could look at dsalglobal.com and that's a bit more about our broader work in the leadership space but also some of the projects like the one I mentioned in the Philippines as well.
2: Yeah no and I definitely just want to make a plug to within dsalglobal.com for the the sort of flagship executive leadership program that I did and that kind of led them to this um, organic program that was created because the thing about that that's really special is the cohorts are people from all over the world working on God knows what everything like from, you know, fishery stuff to fashion design, to baseball. insurance baseball. I mean, talk about like the, what happens when you like put all of that in a blender of like building trust and, and vulnerability and growing and leadership. It's just like kind of epic, um, creativity becomes possible. So I think, um, Yeah, getting outside of your usual circuits and growing in leadership with totally random other sorts of people you might have never worked with is, I think, incredibly valuable um, to get us out of our silos and make us better public health practitioners.
0: Well, great. Thank you both so much for sharing. I really appreciate hearing your perspectives and your stories and lessons you've learned along the way. Is there anything else that you'd like to share?
1: No, I just, I think... It's really easy for us to, um, yeah, I guess, um, get into this professional issue where we dissect everything. But, you know, if I do take a step back, every time I get on a call with these fellows, I'm so excited to hear about their experiences. I'm so invested in both the challenges that they're seeing and navigating, but also just their resilience and their willingness to, um, I guess, think about things in a more i wouldn't say altruistic but a systems level they are part of a system they contribute to a system they see the system for what it is and a real willingness to make some changes so um i think we can get into this hypercritical lens with public health and where our leaders are and you know complain about our boss and you know the state of an institution or what have you but like there are good people in this doing the best that they can and I think the more that we can start to unleash their potential um, a lot of very quick wins uh, will happen and a lot of really lasting impact so I just I just want to say I'm really jazzed to be working on this project I'm super indebted to Lucy for bringing it to the team and then also just I mean if if you said that I would be an MPH graduate who got to hang out with other MPH graduates to talk about our futures in global public health. I'd be like, you're kidding, right? That's a real job. I mean, similar to giving out condoms at a um, at a sets on premises venue or being like, people pay you to do that. So just feeling really blessed today.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I just want to build on that too, just to say that like what's been amazing about this is the journey that we've gone on together, like DSAL, PHI, and the team within the Center for Global Health, Felicia Warren's team, um, like all of us have been going through our own leadership growth journey. I'm I like, Whitney, I'm, you know, perhaps you've you've felt this a little bit, too, in terms of how you've been pulled into this process and, and how, like, it's been demanding of all of us to, like, step into that uh, ambiguity. And and it's been beautiful to watch uh, Christine and Mike and Felicia and their teams like, like step up as well. So, like, we have all been learning on this journey along with the fellows and, and their mentors. And so just seeing this kind of ripple effect is really beautiful. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, I think we're learning a lot uh, and we've got a long way to go still. Um, but, we're shaking the tree and, and sort of trying really new things that I think are much needed and I just look forward to seeing kind of what the future holds.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you both so much. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the Unnamed Road from the fellows and also following your careers in the future as well.
2: Thanks, Whitney. Thanks, Whitney.
0: Thank you to our guests, Lucy Ellis and Gareth Durant and thanks to all of you for tuning in to the PHI CDC Global Health Podcast. This podcast is a project of the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship Program implemented by the Public Health Institute and its partner Consortium of Universities for Global Health for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Please join us next time as we share more fellowship stories. To learn more about our program and see how we are making meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges, visit our website at phi-cdcfellows.org. If you enjoy the podcast, you can always subscribe or rate us and leave a review, which helps other listeners find the podcast. For questions, please email us at info at phi-cdcfellows.org. This podcast is produced by Whitney Sturton Hall. Thank you to Mike Sage, Christine Caraballo, Felicia Warren, CDC Center for Global Health, PHI, and CUGH.